So tonight is our Q&A. Now, we have, uh, I did not have you guys submit any questions because I decided, ah, what the hey, why don't we just take them all live and on the spot just because it's always fun. So hopefully you've been thinking about what questions you want to ask and some of you are already ready and chomping at the bit. All right, so uh, that's what we're gonna do and we'll just kind of see where it takes us. If you guys end up having questions that stem off of some of these things, um, you know, then we will do that. If there are things that uh, I don't know, I'll be honest with you and I'll try to find out some of the answers to them, but I will try to do my best to give you an answer. So hopefully you've been thinking of things already. So Timmy's like ready to roll. So I mean, I've got to. I've had this question for so long and I've never been able to find an answer. What is Noah's wife's name? What is Noah's wife's name? Okay, if it's not in the Bible, I don't know. Tanisha. <laughs> no, it is not. No, it is not. Um, is it in the Bible? Did you try to find it? Okay, well, let's see if we can find it. So where are we going? Where's Noah's, where's the story of Noah? Genesis. Chapter. It is Genesis. It is Genesis. It was more of a rhetorical question. I knew the answer's not there. Okay, because it's not in the Bible. I, can't, I mean, that, that has to be a condition. Like, if there's going to be a question asked, like, the answer has to be in the scriptures. Otherwise, for the most part, it's just going to be my opinion. Nama? Nama. Yeah. All right, so... Um, yep, there you go. So Noah went in and his wife in verse 7. So, so chapter 7 of Genesis and verse 6, it tells you how old he was. He was 600 years old when the flood of the waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons and wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. So that's it. Outside of that, we really don't have any other place that I can possibly think of. His kids will probably just call her mom. So. Yeah, there you go. Mom, Madre. Yeah, I mean, they're they all just like, we only called her mom. I don't know what her name is. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Okay. There you go. So. I have a serious question. Okay, all right. But you did have a question. All right, so Timmy, I can't help you with that one because Noah's wife's name is not in the Bible. Therefore, I cannot give you any sort of a answer. That is unfortunate, but thank you. You're welcome. Maybe it's a question you have for God one day. Oh, this is another question kind of stemming out there. What if we go to heaven? Do you think we'll know everything about this, like, immediately? Or is there going to be, like, a Bible class that's going to take on your years? I don't think there's going to be a Bible class in heaven. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the moment that we have glorified bodies, as soon as that happens, then we're going to have a, not only a new body but a new mind. And I think that we're going to have the ability to know everything. Now, obviously, when it comes to God, he's infinite, and we are not. We're not created that way. So we're going to be always learning about God and there'll be no end to that which is going to be interesting but I think a lot of the things that we've always wanted to know and never understood won't be able to understand so alright Isaac I think you had your hand up next no? okay okay I think we're better <laughs> okay, okay, Carson. What does the state of mind of a healthy Christian look like? The state of mind of a healthy Christian. Yeah. Okay, that's very practical. So, um, okay, so this kind of goes into the, what we've been talking about a little bit with the guy's Bible study. So go over to Second Peter. Second Peter. Second Peter. I'm going to give you a very, very simple overview of this because you could really dive into the details of this particular chapter. Um, so the mindset of a healthy Christian, what does it look like? Okay. All right. 
So the, the best example that you can possibly point to would be Jesus Christ himself, obviously, because he is the best example um, that anyone could ever have when it comes to how to walk with God, how to live in the will of God, how to make good decisions in the midst of adversity, uh, all of that stuff. He's a great example of it. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, Um, We'll just start off in verse 1. So Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith, so that includes us, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So this is to born again folks. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on, according to his, his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So before we even get into verse 4, what I love about verse 3 is that those of us that are saved and born again, the moment that a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they have now been given what's called here in verse 3 divine power, that, is, that gives us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So the moment that you get saved, you have the ability to understand everything as far as how to live righteous and righteously in your life in every given circumstance. The issue is whether or not you're going to yield to God's spirit and to God's leading. Because there's certain things that you don't know. Like, for example, I can't expect my 4-year-old to behave as mature as my 11-year-old. There's just certain things that through the process of maturity that, they, that she has to understand and has to grow through. And so, spiritually speaking, there are people that are newer in their faith and they don't understand certain things just through ignorance or just their inability to understand certain things spiritually. So it takes time to grow in some of that stuff, but you have everything that you need through the Spirit of God, and then uh, he obviously authored, authored the Word of God. You have everything you need to know what to do. It's just a matter of discerning and how to find that information. But the Spirit of God is going to lead you. If you have the Spirit of God inside of you, He's never going to lead you down a path of disobedience, right? That's what we do. So He's going to be convicting and guiding you, and He can use people and circumstances in your life in order to guide and direct you in those manners. But according to verse 3, you have everything you need to live righteously and godly in any, in any situation in your life, just with the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So then he says, after that, who's called us unto glory and virtue, verse 4, whereby this knowledge and through the Spirit of God, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, these promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So again, lust has no dominion over us. Sin has no dominion over us. That's Romans 6. But it says here that through the Spirit of God and through salvation, you have the ability to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then he continues, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, into knowledge, temperance, into temperance, patience, into patience, godliness, into godliness, brotherly kindness, into brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So this list that we have, beginning in verse 5, and ends in verse 7, uh, really is the key to spiritual maturity. So if you're talking about the mindset of of a mature, stable, born-again believer, it's this. And so the process, as you see here, is is it's addition. So it says, add to your faith, and the next thing is virtue. So faith is that thing, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is what saves us. So that is salvation. The faith you have in the Lord Jesus Christ is your salvation. And so adding to your salvation then would be virtue. 
okay? So virtue, very simply put, if you think about it, a lot of people think about it as moral excellence, but it goes way beyond moral excellence. It starts to get into the realm of when you look at it in, in the way it used to be used, especially even like 100 years ago, virtue literally meant strength. And so it's on the front of, of spiritual strength. So the only way that a Christian can grow and have spiritual strength is if they are being obedient to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. That's the only way it can happen. So as you are being submissive to the Spirit of God in your life, as He convicts you and then you're obedient, or He's teaching you things out of His Word and you are obedient to those things regardless of how you feel, then what will happen is that you will become spiritually strong. And it's not something that happens necessarily overnight. It's similar to when you go and you work out or if any of you are involved in any sort of conditioning or running or anything. The first time you run, how, how well do you run? Horrendous. You're winded very easily, you get exhausted, but if you keep running and you, you can increase your time, you can increase your endurance, you can increase your distance, but you can't expect to get up and just all of a sudden just run 10 miles on day one. It's just not going to happen. I mean, you could try and you'll probably end up putting your body in shock and puking everywhere and not wanting to run ever again. But that's the process. Or if you're lifting weights and you start off, I mean, the first day, the second day, you are sore as all get out. But if you keep lifting and keep working out, then your muscles start to grow through the process. And you're able to lift more and there are certain times where you grow a lot faster than others. And then there's certain times where you start to plateau when it comes to your endurance, your ability to lift certain weights. And so then you have to change things up and then you have to, and it's very similar on the spiritual front. So until you actually start being obedient to what the Spirit wants you to do, you will never get strong. So you need virtue. Most people want to skip virtue, but virtue is the most critical aspect. Outside of your salvation, virtue is the most important. Because if you don't have spiritual strength, then the next part isn't going to mean anything. So add your faith virtue into virtue knowledge. So knowing more information about God and the Bible and spiritual things doesn't mean anything unless you have virtue. So if you're not going to be obedient in the things that you already know you're supposed to be doing, then learning more about God isn't going to really benefit you very much. It's just not. It's going to give you a giant, big, puffy head, and you're going to say, well, I know more about God and the Bible than anybody else. That's all it's really going to do. And there's a lot of people that do that, and they think that's what it means to be spiritual. That's not what it means to be spiritual. Just because you can answer questions doesn't mean you're spiritual. It's actually what you do with what you know, and that's virtue. So once you start really living a life of virtue, which means being obedient, to the Spirit of God, you will become spiritually strong. If you were to look up the word virtue in the Bible, you'll find an account in the Gospels where when Jesus was healing somebody, it literally says the virtue went out of him. That was spiritual strength. And so that spiritual strength is needed in service to God. And if you don't have a life of obedience to the Spirit of God, you have no spiritual strength, and so you cannot glorify God. So you add to your faith virtue, and then adding to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge then temperance. Because now that you know more information, now you need to be temperate. You need to be balanced. You can't be overzealous. You can't be underzealous. You have to be temperate. You have to be balanced. And then once you, add, uh, once you have temperance and you add your temperance, patience and learning long-suffering. And then to patience, godliness. So that's exactly what comes next after learning to be patient. And we can see that out of Romans chapter 5. talks about patience and what it produces. James chapter 1 talks about what pa patience produces. It produces perfection which is another term for godliness as well. And the godliness of brotherly kindness. So you can truly start to love and be kind as God would because you're godly. And then you can truly have charity, that selfless love for other people, not expecting anything in return if you exercise brotherly kindness. So these things exist in your life just by 
spiritual maturity. And then verse 8 tells you how important this is. If these things be in you and abound, which means you don't put any limits on them whatsoever, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. So the mark of a stable, mature Christian is that you are fruitful. That you're fruitful. That you have the ability and you are producing fruit. Now, what would that look like? This would be your participation part. What does fruit look like in a, in a believer? When you look at someone, you're like, man, they're fruitful. What's their characteristics? What do they do? Yeah. They bring other people around them closer to God. Okay. Yeah. Lost and saved alike, right? So they are constantly trying to pull lost people in, maybe inviting them to church. People that are saved, they're trying to encourage them and helping them walk closer with God. Good, Timmy? Normally they're really well established in their walk and they're always like boosting up other people and trying to convince them and help them along with their walks. Okay, so they're walking with God, but they're also trying to encourage others. Ethan? So like he's not based, not so much on like their actions, but like the closer they get with God, you see the fruit of the Spirit grow more in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's through their yeah their attitude, their actions. Absolutely. Um, they just look more like Jesus. They just do. I mean, you can start reading the Gospels, and you can start to see aspects of Jesus' character that you can see in other people. Yeah, Sam? Evangelism and discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the work of the Lord, that they're fruitful in those things. You know, unless you actually go and fish, you're not going to catch anything. Right? Did you know that? If you want to go fishing... <laughs> you can't catch anything without actually fishing. And through fishing, you gain great experience about what lures work, what parts of the lake are actually good, what, what parts of the lure works in certain parts of the lake. I mean, and it's the same thing when it comes to evangelism and discipleship. If people are never evangelizing, you can never get good at it. And if you're never in the process of discipling, you'll never be good at it. Some are, come more naturally to others um, than, than for me, you know, looking at my life. Um, I'm more of a discipler than I am an evangelist. It's just kind of the way that I'm wired, but that doesn't give me an excuse not to evangelize. But I do, it's, it's, it's more natural for me to want to encourage people or to try to help identify stumbling blocks in people's lives that, that need to be removed in order for them to walk with God. But then I have to be careful because what stumbling blocks exist in my life that I'm not willing to deal with. And then I immediately stop being a good discipler. So there's a lot of those things that have to take into account. But if you're doing this, if you're following this pattern and your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance patience, patience godliness, and all the way down the line, if these things exist in you and you're not holding them back, then you're you're not going to be barren. You're not going to be unfruitful. You'll be very fruitful on many different fronts, not just evangelism, on many different fronts. And you're going to make a huge impact for the Lord. So that's probably the most concise place that I could take you to. And that's one of the reasons why in the guy's study on Saturday, we're doing this and we're looking at each characteristic. Yeah, Timmy. More of a serious question this time. So when God created humanity, it was for the purpose of because he wanted beings that have a free will. Mm -hmm. Yep. So when Lucifer fell, obviously he did that by his own choice. He became right. prideful. So there were already beings that had free will. So what was the complete purpose of humanity if angels were made with free will and mm -hmm. then also were able to worship God? Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, all right. So let's go to, um, let's see here. Go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis. And go to chapter 2. Chapter 1. Let's do chapter 1. Okay. 
you say one or two? Uh, one. I said two first, and then I retracted that and said one. <laughs> no, we were in chapter two, and then I said, let's go back to chapter one. I'm not stupid. I know you're not. It's okay. It's okay. All right. So there's there's a couple of things that I need to mention with this one before we um, before I can really answer I can answer that one. Um, okay. So mm, trying to figure out the right place to go. All right, so chapter 1, take a look at when God made Adam and Eve. All right, so go to verse 26. And uh, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish, replenish, replenish. There's a key word there. Replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So oversimplified, the mission or the purpose of mankind is to be fruitful and multiply. And within this context, if you consider Adam and Eve, sin had not entered into this economy of things. So if God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, then what would that look like? If they never sinned? Yeah, Jacob. A perfect race? Yes. So you'd have human beings, male and female, as they would begin to procreate and then as they would mature and there would be no death because death comes through sin, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So you would have men and women, boys and girls, you'd have an entire planet full of people that would be worshiping and honoring and glorifying God and being obedient to what God told them to do. So that was the purpose and the intent. So when you think about that, that goes back to the purpose of man. Okay, so God gave him the ability to be fruitful and multiply. That's why he gave him that command. The key word here that I like to focus on, because it's just one of those words that's seeing out to you, is guess what it is in verse 28? Replenish. Okay, so what does replenish mean? Replenish again. To plenish again, yes. <laughs> to redo the plenishing that existed prior. Okay. And yet, and yet, this is where, and this can, this is, this can be kind of contentious, so I'm not meaning to be contentious, and I don't want you to be contentious, but there's a lot of Christians that fight over this. There's a lot of Christians that fight over this because, so, if God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, what does that mean? There was something there prior to Adam and Eve that populated the earth. Now there's a lot of people that try to work around that and say, well, replenish here can also mean to fill. Okay, yeah, but like if I go, if I go to a restaurant and I say, um, or the waitress comes around like, hey, you know, do you want to refill? Like she doesn't say that the first go around, right? Like you have a cup and it's empty and she's like, and she's like hey, um, do you want yeah, to refill? <laughs> yeah, no, she gives you the drink, you drink the drink, and then says, hey, can I get a refill? Okay, so this is just normal, the normal way that we speak. The other reason why we know that this is talking about the population of something that existed prior, the replenishing of the planet, is if you go over to Genesis chapter eight, chapter nine. So the flood already happened. And the entire world is completely wiped out. And now you have Noah and his family and the animals that they had on the ark at the time. In verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and 
replenish the earth, replenish the earth. So this is in that same context. God tells Noah, replenish the earth. And of course, was there something there before Noah? Yes. Absolutely. So we can be assured that there was something before Adam and Eve. Otherwise, why would God use the word replenish here? Okay, so it says replenish the earth. Okay, so now knowing that was the case, knowing that there was something prior, what happened and what was that? And this is where it starts to kind of get out of control. And so we might spend all the rest of our time on this whole topic just because it's a very interesting topic. So with this one... Um, You've got two chapters that we can go to. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. Let's take a look at this one first. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Ezekiel 28. Okay. Ezekiel chapter 28. <clears throat> There are two chapters in the Bible that talk about Lucifer directly before his fall and what led to his fall. Ezekiel 28 is one of them. Isaiah 14 is the other. So we'll look at Ezekiel 28 first. Ezekiel 28 and start in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, God will do this a lot of times. He will take a person that literally existed in history, and he will use that and use their life as a uh, really a doctrinal picture of deeper things he's trying to communicate. He did the same thing with uh, Joseph, and Joseph is one of the greatest pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. There's, I mean, hundreds of, of little things, little details that are found in the life of Joseph that line up perfectly with Jesus. So it's not God does this. He uses people's lives as a word picture of things that he wants to teach. King of Tyrus is a representation of the devil. So um, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, of course, this wasn't the king of Tyrus. Now he's starting to change it in verse 13. Ironically, verse 13. Like, that's just a quinky dinker, I'm sure. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. All right, so we'll pause there for a second. So he's talking about Lucifer. And it talks about his covering. So Lucifer, and, and this goes back to even when you look at the priest's garments, when the priest wore the ephod, um, every single one of these gems are actually in the, the priestly uh, vest of the ephod. So uh, the high priest would wear this ephod in direct communication with God. And so here you have a creature who's the anointed cherub that covers God's throne that has the same sort of covering on himself. So Lucifer's body was made up of all these precious stones. And here it says that he also had tabernacles the workmanship of thy tabernacles and of thy pipes. So his body was not only made up of these precious stones, but there was a musical instrument actually incorporated into his very being through which he could uh, play and, and really, you know, perform beautiful music as the anointed cherub. Now verse 14 tells you what his role was. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, 
with this picture then, what you have is, um, so you have here, um, knowing this is before Adam and Eve, and this will make sense once we complete the picture, but here you have Earth, and then you have God's throne, and just for the lack of time, I'm just going to put a, okay, so that's God's throne, all right? And then uh, in Revelation, there's also pictures of this in Revelation um, chapter 21, chapter 22. Uh, also in Daniel, it talks about the mountain of God. And so whenever it talks about God's physical kingdom, it's literally going to be like a mountain. So when he talks, it talks about it, and he says, You walked up and down in the midst um, of the stones of fire. And he says, I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. So there was a mountain that existed. And it was God's mountain. But this mountain that existed and these stones of fire literally led to earth itself. And we'll see in Isaiah 14 that Lucifer had a throne and his throne was upon the earth. And so God's throne, anytime you see God's throne in the Bible, God's throne was always surrounded by cherubim. And there's four. In the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, you find that there are four cherubim that cover God's throne. And so you have one that's here in the front. You have another one here that's in the front. You have another one that's in the back corner and another one's in the back corner. So if, if it were to be a chair like this, you would literally have a cherubim that would be at each corner, one here, one here, one here, one here. And they, day and night, according to Isaiah, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they have um, two wings that cover their face, two wings that cover their feet, uh, two wings that cause them to fly. And so there's these winged creatures called cherubim. They're not angels, they're cherubim. They're angelic creatures. So he calls him the anointed cherub that covereth. And he had the ability to walk up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. And in Isaiah 14, it says that he has a throne, which we'll read that in a minute. So Lucifer had dominion on this throne over God's earth. And he had the ability to walk up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. There's references all over the scripture, and you'll see it now. And you'll see, like when God was telling Solomon to build his temple, and he said, um, you know, the heavens of heavens cannot contain me. And he says that heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You remember that phrase that God said throughout scripture? Well, he wasn't joking. So when things were back the way that they were supposed to be, Heaven is God's throne, and earth was his footstool. This is, the earth was always in close proximity to God's throne. It always has been, and that was the way it, God wants it to be. And when everything is finally restored once and for all, it will be that way again. So Lucifer had this ability to go up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, to sit upon his throne upon the earth, Isaiah 14, and also to come up here to be that anointed cherub that covered God's throne. 1 John chapter 1 talks about that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So, at this point in time, the universe is full of light because there's nothing dividing God's presence from his creation. Make sense? Okay. So, as God being that source of light, Lucifer on his body bearing all these gems and everything, what do you think would happen when he would stand as the covering, the anointed cherub that covered God's throne? There would be an incredible light show. One of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. I mean, one of the most beautiful, outstanding things you've ever seen. It would have caused all of creation just to bow down and to worship God. Now, I believe, through comparing Scripture to Scripture, that there were three times a year that he would go up and he would do this. And everyone would come and they'd worship God three times a year. So when this would happen then, and he'd play this music, and there would be this incredible light show, all of the earth, all of the universe, everything would just bow down and worship him. All the angels, all the creatures, and everything. Who's the everyone? 
all of the creatures, all of the angels. Okay, we'll get there. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. All right, we're setting, the, we're laying the groundwork a little bit here. Okay, okay. So that's what we have in verse fourteen, and then verse fifteen. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. And then it tells you what led to his fall. By the multitude of thy merchandise, thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore will I cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering chair, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. So as the king of the earth at this point in time, Lucifer, upon his throne, he had the ability to do certain things. So he had this merchandise, and he filled the earth with his traffic. So he was compiling wisdom and power and, and materialism and everything. So when you look at verse 16, his merchandise, this would be the lust of the flesh, or the lust of the eye, this would be materialism. And then he was corrupted by not only his merchandise in 16, but in verse 17, he was lifted up because of thy beauty. So this would be also lust of the eye, lust of the flesh. So he, uh, he was consumed with his aesthetics and how things appear. And then thou hast corrupted um, thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. And this would be the pride of life or knowledge and education. And it's not a coincidence that our world is consumed with materialism, aesthetics, and knowledge and education because he is the God of this world. So all those things are the things that corrupted the devil, and those are the three things that are, are his, I mean, go-to, and when it comes to his MO on how he attacks us every single day, every single day. It's what he attacked Jesus with out in the wilderness, and it's what he attacks us with every single day. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But this was his original plan. Now that God had to condemn his kingdom that existed here, he had to wipe everything out and that's when he approaches with Adam and Eve and says to replenish the earth. You are now the new king. You're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the earth, over the cattle, over every living thing, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. You're going to have dominion, King Adam. Adam took Lucifer's spot. So now he becomes the king. And now he says, I need you to be fruitful and multiply. Which also means, by the way, that Lucifer was given a commission to be fruitful and multiply as well. Now, with that, the only place that I can go to on this one is Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, to see that angels, the angelic beings, through which Lucifer would have been the head as the anointed cherub. And by the way, the anointed cherub, another term for that would be Messiah. Um, Genesis chapter 6. And so he would have been the leader of the angelic hosts, also called the sons of God. Um, and not all the angelic hosts were called the sons of God. There seems to be only a portion of them that were called the sons of God. And I can show you that in a minute. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when 
And this is how you know this is not, these are not human beings. When the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So because of the sons of God, these celestial beings that came down and took human women and began to procreate with them, it then created a race of giants, and it created these mighty men that were of old men of renown. And you can see these men throughout scriptures. One clear example of this would be Goliath. And there was also another five of his brothers, I think, uh, or yeah, there's five of his brothers. And the children of Anak is another one in the Old Testament. Um, and you have Adonikim is another one that kind of traced throughout uh, Israel's history. So here you have these sons of God. And so we know that they're not human beings because of what they bear unto these women. Uh, these are, 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 are giants, and they're also men of old, men of renown, these mighty men. We also know the other place that it's mentioned is in Job chapter 38. So take a look at that real quick, Job chapter 38. So Job 38, okay. Job 38, verse 4. God says to Job here, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So verse 7 tells you that there are two different classes of angels. One would be called the sons of God, and the other one would be called these morning stars. Throughout Scripture, angels are called stars, um, and they have the representation of the Son of God, which Jesus called the bright and morning star. But then you have these sons of God. So these sons of God is what it's talking about here in Genesis 6. Now with verse 7 here, this happened, uh, when this unfolded, this was before the fall. There's no doubt about that because God is laying the foundations of the earth. So it's the first time that he actually created the earth. And when he's creating the universe for the very first time and he's creating it and he laid that foundation and says, okay, this is it. This is when he created it. And that's when they, uh, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. But the next time you see the sons of God in a chronological order is Genesis 6 where they have fallen. Now they're taking the human women and creating abominations. So something happened between, between then. So this goes back to Genesis chapter 1. So flip back there. We're comparing scripture to scripture. Back here, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. There's a lot of directions we can go with this. But trying to keep this as simple as possible. So what we just read in Job 38 is this verse here, Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then everything we just read in Ezekiel 28, and we didn't read Isaiah 14, but that would be another section, um, then that would be what would take place in between verse 1 and verse 2. And the reason why I am very confident of that is because of how verse 2 says this. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and then you have the six days of creation. So, there's a lot of people that may have a hard time with this, but when I look at verse 2, I have one question. And this, this, this one really settled it for me, and this really helped me out a lot. Is God perfect? <laughs> I don't know. Is God perfect? Yes. 
Emily Bachman, God is perfect. Take that away. That's a good one. All right. Is God perfect? Yes. Now, there is a passage of scripture which I can look up. I don't know the reference off the top of my head. But it talks about that all of God's ways are perfect. All of them. From the end of the beginning, all of God's ways are perfect. So, if that is true, why would God create an earth without form, void, and full of darkness? Exactly. Because when God creates something, He is perfect, and what He creates is perfect. So, and with Him being light, and in Him is no darkness at all, then when He created the heaven and the earth, why would He create it in such a way that it has no form, that it is void or empty, and darkness is upon the face of the deep? It makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense whatsoever. So then that means something had to happen. Something had to happen to create the earth in a universe full of water, full of darkness. Because by the way, where did the water come from? Because all it says in verse 1 is, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. He said nothing about water. Where did the water come from? The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> the, big, the Big Bang Theory. Okay, all right, all right. Let's emphasize the theory part. Okay, like where did that come from? That's a legitimate question. Because there's a lot of people that say, well, no, what it says in verse 1, it just led into verse 2. Okay, well, then I have a problem with that because that's completely against God's nature and God's character. Why would he create something without form and void and there's, it, the universe is full of darkness and where in the world did the water even come from? That makes no sense whatsoever. And then the other issue that I have too is where did Lucifer fall? Because the next time you actually see Lucifer show up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. So you don't see him in a pre-fallen state except for in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And that, in, that involves his role and who he was. And when you start to read the role and who he was and the things that existed, there had to have been something that existed in that universe or during that time that led to his particular fall. We know that the angels existed, but there was probably something else. And we also know from Genesis chapter 6 that the sons of God, which are angelic creatures, had the ability to procreate. Right? Otherwise, how could they have taken the women of man and procreated with them? So they had the ability to procreate. And so if these sons of God did in fact exist prior to Adam and Eve, then God gave them the ability to procreate then too. So as you start to kind of put all this stuff together, it starts to go, it starts to just match up perfectly. Because the way you find the earth is not like this. But this is the way that God described it in Ezekiel 28. The way you find the earth now, based on Genesis 1-2, and as God is creating everything, and we can step through this. This is very interesting. So you have the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Like this is now Genesis 1-2. Okay? The universe is now full of water. has no reference to God's throne. It just says heaven and the earth, verse 1, and the earth is without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. That's all we have. Now if you keep going, and it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now there's no body of light, but he just says, Let the existence of light be. He says, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and, the, and God called the light day, capital D, for a reason. 
That's a person. In darkness he called night. In the evening and the morning were the first day. So on the first day of creation, all he said was let there be light, and then he made a division. So he started to make a distinction between light and dark. That's all he did. And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it's a proper noun. So then, moving on from there, you get into the second day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament, from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so, and God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So this firmament, God says, okay, I want to put a firmament in the midst of heaven. So basically, then, you'd have this, okay, so here's my space, all right? There's my, there's my firmament, and the earth is in there. God, I can't forget the earth, okay? And he now is dividing the waters from the waters. And as God divides the waters from the waters, he takes this, this batch of waters and he pushes it up. And he takes this batch of waters and he pushes it down. Now, there's two ways to go about this. And I've seen both because you can see it in later in creation. But you, as he pushes the waters up, now this creates a barrier of water up here. And now you have the entire universe. And then you have the earth here, and now you have waters that are upon the earth. Thank you. I am a little bit coordinated. Okay. All right. Okay. For those of you that are on the podcast, I'm drawing. Okay. All right. So now you have waters up here, waters down below. And so you have waters that are now on here, and there's also different places throughout the universe, like they found water on Mars, and there's other places like that. But now you have waters that are above, and now you have this giant firmament in the midst. And he says, in the firmament he called heaven. This is what he said. This is now heaven. And so now what you have, as he continues through here, he said in verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Now this would be that gathering of waters on the earth. Dry land now appears. Verse 9. Verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So there are two seas that now exist. You have this sea, and now you have this sea down here. Okay, so the gathering together of the waters he now called seas. And then God said, let the earth, and he continues, and he starts to bring in the end of the third day, and then he starts doing the greater lights and the lesser light, the sun and the moon and the stars, and then he goes on with the fourth day of creation, the fifth day of creation, where he creates the fowls of the air, and then the sixth day of creation, he creates the beast, and then Adam and Eve. Okay? Yes? Are there fish in that sea? Uh, no, but there are some interesting things in that sea for sure, which we could get into a little bit later. What's that? Yes, it is the sea of glass. Yes. There, look at you. Look at you. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Now, at the end of, now this is where I want you to see this, because in your Bible, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, okay? So heaven, that is singular, correct? In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now there are some Bible translations that do not have it singular, they have it plural. But there's a reason why it's singular. And if you actually go back to the Hebrew, it is singular, by the way. But we know that it's singular because your King James Bible, who uh, they translated word for word accurately over, they kept it singular for a reason. A lot of the modern Bible translations, they updated it and made it heavens because they're saying, well, that can't be right. Because it says over in chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens, plural, and the earth were finished 
all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day God ended his work. So that must be a mistake in Genesis 1.1. No, that was not a mistake. That was absolutely not a mistake. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. His throne and the earth were in close proximity one with another. There was nothing dividing God's throne from his creation. It was a universe that was absolutely full of light. Lucifer walked up and down in the midst of stones of fire, going from the earth, from his throne, up to cover God's throne, and back and forth three times a year to present himself before God and led the worship of God. It was amazing. And then, once Lucifer stepped into the picture because of his sin, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, God said, all right, got to judge the earth. So as soon as that happened, now you have God's throne and the earth. God now has to judge the kingdom, Lucifer's kingdom, the earth. And now he has to separate those. And you have an entire universe that is now full of water. That it now exists because of that judgment. And now God, in verse 2 of Genesis 1, all the way through the end of the chapter, is now recreating the entire universe. And now he has divisions. And so now there are heavens because you have the first heaven, the atmosphere, the second heaven, space in the universe, and the third heaven where God's throne sits because of the division that exists with the water and the ferment in the midst. Got it? Okay, this is a lot. This is, uh, many people do, don't understand this. This, was, this is big. This is big. Because there's coming a day where God wants to remove this sea. He wants it completely gone. Take a look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Okay, so the context of chapter 21 is chapter 20. And verse 11 through 15 of chapter 20 is the final judgment, where sin is judged once and for all. Where it, That is it. I mean, that is it. It is over. And so at the end of verse 15, it says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And once that happens, it is now over. Sin is now judged once and for all, and it is done. The devil's already been judged by this point. The beast and the, anti uh, the Antichrist has already been judged. The false prophet's already been judged. Everything's been judged. This is it. Now chapter 21. It's brand new. And I saw a new heaven. Is it plural or singular? Singular. Singular. That's on purpose, by the way. A new heaven and a new earth. You're back to Genesis 1-1 again. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, that's Genesis 1-1, and there was no more sea. There's no more sea now. So now what God does in the recreation, which would be the third time this happened, He now removes the sea, all of it, because He burned it all by fire. And now you have what it was originally again. You have the earth, sorry for the egg shape. And then you have God's throne. Sorry. Cherubim. Cherubim. And you actually end up having the mountain of God, according to Daniel. And you have the anointed cherub that covers, by the way, would be Jesus Christ. As the Messiah. Yeah. Might be a tangent, but does the... Okay, now I'm going to mess it up. The dream about the staircase to heaven. Jacob's ladder. Yeah, does that have anything to do with that? Or is that kind of just... Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, the place where he laid his head was the foundation of the future temple, mm -hmm. which would have been the place where, you know, Israel would have been able to restore their relationship with God, um, from which, the, you know, the Messiah was going to be crucified, Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, that kind of... So, I mean, it has significance there, mm -hmm. the restoration of what God always wanted. 
but yeah, this kind of it kind of goes into it, but it's a little bit different. A little bit different. Yeah. You said there was something in the sea of glass, right? Yeah, that was the sea of glass that we just erased. Well, what was oh, that was okay. That's another question. Yeah, all right. We're all stuck on that. You were stuck on that one. Okay. All right. Let's 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 finish this one out. So, are there any questions about anything we just talked about? Because that was a load. <laughs> You're just laughing at me. You're like, uh, where do I even begin? <laughs> All right. So anything related to what we just talked about? Okay. Ethan. Okay. So you were talking about like the stuff being in the sea. And I know we talked about UFOs a week ago, but like yeah. Psalm 104 where it talks about the great and wide sea where there's, there are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There's that Leviathan. Mm -hmm. That was made to play therein. Mm -hmm. So like, are you saying like that's where... Like, I guess those spaceships would be up in the celestial sea. Yeah. Yes. And that's where, so when Lucifer was cast out of the third heaven, that's where he went. And then there was a period of time where he was actually cast out of there and became the prince of the power of the air. And then from after that, during the tribulation, he's cast down to the physical earth. And then from there, then he actually takes the possession of the Antichrist. So he goes further down. And then after the Antichrist is condemned, he's then thrown into the bottomless pit. So there's a continuation of down, 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 down in all of his judgments, which is quite interesting. And then I just found this today. This is a really sweet nugget. But in Isaiah 14, there are five I wills where he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So there's five of them. In Ezekiel 28, God has five I wills that come against every single I will that, the Luc that Lucifer says in Isaiah 14. So that's a really sweet one. Okay, but we're staying on this topic. Real quick. Okay, Carson, do you have something? Um, I just, I'm still curious if we know... Does the Bible say what those people look like, or people? No, it says nothing about them. It doesn't say. No, it, so all we know is that the sons of God have the ability to procreate, so they had to have something to procreate with. Yeah. We have no idea what that is. Okay. Now, the one thing that I have really worked on and I've been considering is the origin of devils, because devils are not... Everyone uses the term demon, but the biblical term is devils. And devils are disembodied evil spirits. They are not fallen angels. Fallen angels have physical bodies. So these disembodied spirits called devils have the ability to possess people. And I, and I can't prove this. This is all conjecture. But I believe it would be that female counterpart through which the sons of God could have procreated with. But I can't prove that. But the Bible doesn't say where devils even came from. So, yeah, Isaac. Um. I was going to ask, like, why is it called, like, the gap theory? Or is it actually, like, something that can be, like, proven? It is proven, for sure. People call it a theory because they just don't want to look at the facts. Okay. Just to be honest. Yeah. Um, I just wonder, because I we have, called that and I just didn't know. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I don't like calling it the gap theory. I just, I just say that because I'm being respectful. I, there's a book that was written, um, you know, people say they call it the gap fact. Okay. I think the gap is biblical. Like, for example, I'm taking my kids down to the Creation Museum. Yeah. So that, you know, what is it? What's his name? Is it Ken Ham? Yeah. yeah. So he is anti-gap, like anti-gap. And he will not hear this at all. But the one thing that that I always get tripped, on, tripped up on with this is that... Um, he accuses people that believe in the gap that we believe in theistic evolution, that we believe in evolution, which is why we believe that there is a gap of time that could be millions of years. I don't believe that at all. I believe the humans have been on the earth very clearly for only 6,000 years max before Jesus Christ comes and sets up his kingdom for the last 1,000 years. So humans have only been on this earth, but I do believe that the earth, the planet earth, is a lot older than what 
than what the young earth, they call them young earthers. So Cain and Abel be a young earth. He only thinks the earth is only 6,000 years old. I think the earth is way older. We don't know how old it is, but I think it's way older. But humans being on the earth is a whole different, so, whole different ballgame. Like, does, like, does the gap have any bearing on how we should live our lives as Christians? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Because, um, now I would say that there are people that are good Christians that don't believe in the gap and they're still, still, still fruitful. But I do think that there are some very clear scriptures that can only be opened up through understanding the gap. Um, like there's a, there's a passage of scripture. This is, it's really cool. Let me see if I can find it. It's in, um, oh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Take a look at this. This is cool. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's some deeper truths about God that people that are not willing to consider the gap will completely miss out on. Completely. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, verse 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom... The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Take a look at verse 4 again. This is really interesting. So right here, tucked in here in verse 4, you actually have the gap. You have a type of the gap. So you have, our gospel is hid, but it's hid to them that are lost. And what is it correlated to? Because you have a colon there, which means it's going to give more information. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. The earth was out form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. Lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So right there, you actually have the world without form and void and full of darkness is us as a lost sinner. We're, I mean, if you start thinking about it, a lost person has no ability to glorify God. They are without form. They're full of emptiness, void, and they're full of darkness. They have no way. And then God said, let there be light. And so even though we are lost sinners, God, in his graciousness and in his mercy, has extended a hand of redemption towards us. And now we have the ability to be recreated, which is incredible. So right there you have the gap actually illustrating the gospel. Right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So there's little nuggets like that that you can see throughout Scripture that really, it really broadens your understanding of God's character and God's nature. His pattern is always um, not the first, but the second. Like He does it all the time. You can see that throughout uh, Scripture. God never establishes something with the first go-around. It's always with the second. And how he did that with Adam and Eve. And so then when God became a man and actually restored humanity, and then through the restored humanity, he's actually going to repopulate not just the earth, but the entire universe with people that are going to love and serve God throughout all eternity. And that happened with the second earth. Not the first, with Lucifer, but the second, with Adam. And why Jesus called the last Adam. So there's little things like that that all of a sudden pop up in Scripture. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And it kind of came out of the whole gap. So there's things that really you start to understand deeper when it comes to God's character um, looking at the gap. The other thing that really helps me out too is understanding Lucifer had to fall and why would God not talk about it? And of course he did. 
but it, a lot of people that, that they, they don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with that because you, they say, well, he, we know that he had to fall prior to chapter 3 because now he shows up and he is, you know, God calls him the serpent that now is talking with Eve, but he had to fall prior to that. Why would God not talk about that? That's a pretty big event. And we know that God did talk about it. So when you start to look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, you start to see who he was before and what led to his fall. And then now that starts to detail a world that existed before Adam and Eve. Good? Yep. All right. Okay. I don't know who was first. I think he was. Okay. Um, so, there is there is no up and down in space, right? Or just like in general? Uh, yeah, because everything is spinning. So even our galaxy is spinning. Um, so like the sea would be spherical if we'd all be inside the sphere of the sea, right? No. Oh, I see what you're talking about. So... Okay, so um, in the Bible, the direction that God always uses is the north for where his throne is. And, um, and so this gets into where God's throne actually is. So uh, I firmly believe that when God placed the earth where he did, especially as he recreated everything, you, know, you have the earth that's in our solar system, that's in our galaxy, in such a perfect position that we have the ability to look out of our galaxy into the existence of space and to be able to see other galaxies and everything. God did that for a reason. I also think that um, the... Uh, when it comes to the, the magnetism of the earth and everything that controls all of our compasses, when he, he talks about using the north, I think that's legitimate. Because then there is the magnetic north and then there's true north. And so when you start to take a look at all that, in the way that the earth spins, um, true north uh, leads to the north star. And, uh, and the north star would be where God's throne is. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that. Um, there are places in Scripture, like in Song of Solomon, that talks about how uh, that is a picture of God coming back. But it also talks about in Revelation that heaven has windows and it has doors. And, um, and that's through which God and the angels can go in and out. And there's actually a porter on that door. John 10 talks about that. And only certain things are allowed in and out. Um, and so when it talks about the windows and doors... And God's presence being there, God the Father being light, then there would have to be some sort of a, a window through which that light could shine through. And I think that's the North Star. So I think that door or that window in that door is actually the North Star. And I think that's where the third heaven is that opens up in the sea of glass to permit people in and out of where God's throne actually is. And we could go to a bunch of different scriptures on that one, but we just don't have the time. But that's a quick answer for it. Okay. Timmy? So just with whenever the seas were created, yes. where did that water still come from? Because you mentioned that where mm -hmm. the water come from, whenever you know he separated the seas, where did that water still come from? Yeah, so I think it happened with the judgment. Um, the judgment of Lucifer's kingdom. Now, where did that water come from? I'm not exactly sure. Um, the only thing that I've done as far as research, and this was years ago, was um, um, if physical stars existed in the universe at that point in time, which I don't know if they did or not, but I'm guessing that they would have, um, then God would uh, have potentially used the stars as the way to, to cast judgment upon the entire universe at that point in time. Um, scientists have discovered that when a star explodes, the number one element that comes out of stars is water. The number one thing, I should say, not element. The number one thing is, is water. And so if God would have had a universe that would have been full of these 
suns and stars, and if you would have caused all of them to explode in an instant, then the number one thing that would come out of it would have been water and it could have flooded the entire universe. Um, there is evidence that there was an ice age at one point in time. I think that is legitimate. Um, when I look at everything, uh, God judged the world through water, liquid water, with Noah's flood. Before he restores everything again, he's going to judge it by fire, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think the original judgment actually was a judgment of ice. And that would explain the ice age and some of the ice samples that have been taken upon the planet and why they seem to be measuring super, super old. There is one particular ice sample that I studied that when you take the ice sample, you can actually um, measure the layers of ice and, and measure it up with a timeline. And, uh, and as they did that, there is a, a strange phenomenon that, ex that happened around 4,000-ish BC, which is when Adam and Eve were created, that, the, that the, uh, the Earth actually warmed up during that time. And then as you continue measuring out that ice core all the way up till today, it actually lines up perfectly through the, you know, everything that we know as far as our timeline is concerned. So if you measure it all the way back, and you have even the, the evidence of the first humans and things like that, you go back and it measures about 4,000 BC, which is when Adam and Eve were actually created. So I do think that there was an ice age that existed prior to Adam and Eve, and I think it was because of this, because think about it. If you had a, a massive explosion of water, and now that water, is now covering the entire universe. Um, anytime, if you go out into the ocean and you go down deep into the ocean, you can't see the sunlight. It's pitch black. So if you have enough water in the universe, God's presence is now separated from his creation. So when you have light being separated from the deepest, darkest parts of water and it gets so, so cold, the only thing that's going to happen is going to be ice. So I think that the, the entire universe was probably full of ice at that point in time. Again, that's my theory. That's my opinion. I can't really prove that. But I do believe that some of the scientific evidence points to that being true. Okay, Carson. Um, so if, they, if the sons of God could procreate before, yeah. in theory, would we be able to procreate after whatever happened, after rapture and all this stuff happens? I'm not saying that we would, but would we have the anatomical ability to do that? We won't because we're going to be in glorified bodies. But the people that make it through the tribulation, yes, they will. Because we know that during the millennial reign that the Jews and the Gentiles that make it through the tribulation are going to be in their physical sinful bodies in that time, so that thousand years, that they are going to procreate and that the earth is going to be repopulated again at that point in time. Um, and then when Satan is loose, he's going to deceive the nations in that final rebellion. And then there are people that make it through that final judgment because it says in Revelation 20:15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, which means on the contrary, that there are going to be people that are written in the book of life. Because it says, whosoever was not found. So there are going to be people that are found written in the book of life that will be allowed to pass through into the new heaven and new earth. And that's where, in Revelation 21 and 22, where it talks about the tree of life, that the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. So there's something about that tree that when they partake of that tree, it eradicates their sin nature. And now they're back into that state of what Adam and Eve used to be before they fell into sin. And then they have the ability to procreate, and they'll be able to fill the earth and the universe with um, life, and there'll be no, no more death. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I just didn't see it because it was like. So if it was, if they were in space when he created the water, wouldn't the water just go everywhere since there was like no gravity and land to hold it all together? Mm-hmm. So like, why would it not spread out forever, and how do we get like the Earth? Well, it's because the universe is a container; it can't go forever. I mean, the scientists will say that the universe has no no end and it keeps expanding, but how do they know? 
know what I mean? Only God is infinite. So he can't create something that is equally as infinite as he is. Why? So there has to be an end to the universe. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm confused by the, the bounds of the question. You said there would be no gravity. Water is still affected by gravity if you have enough of it. Yeah, okay, there you go. I was just going for logic. He's going scientific. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So there has to be an edge of the universe somewhere because God created it. So... But that would be a question for God because I don't know where that massive amount of water could come from. Okay, what else we got? Yeah, Emily. Um, kind of going off of Christmas Eve, but kind of not. When we get to heaven after the rapture and we have our glorified bodies, mm-hmm. think, are we still going to have the same relationships that we had on earth? Or are we just going to know everybody automatically? Or are we just almost going to like start a, like how's like our relationships with each other going to... Okay. Is so is there anything that says anything about The that? only thing we can go off of is that we're going to have a body like unto Christ. So, um, two places in scripture that talk about this is uh, 1 John chapter 3. Let's take a look at 1 John chapter 3. Okay. <clears throat> All right, 1 John 3. Verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Side note, since we've already talked about the sons of God, those of us that are born again, you find in, in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as believed on Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. So people that are born again actually replace the fallen sons of God. That's why we're called the sons of God, by the way. Just as a side note. Because every time you see the sons of God showed up, it's always in reference to born-again believers. In the Old Testament, it's always in reference to these, this angelic uh, part of the population that existed that had the ability to procreate according to Genesis chapter 6. So you can fit that in somewhere. Okay, so it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So we are called the sons of God. When he appears, we shall be like him. So there's that. Go over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. This is another really clear verse on this one. Philippians 2 and verse... um, I think it was 2. Oh, come on. That wasn't it. I know it's in Philippians, though. Okay, Philippians 3, verse 20, yeah, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first John 3, verses 1 through 3. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue able even to subdue all things unto himself. So Philippians 3 verse 21 says that the body that we are going to get will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. So if you go back into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you start to see the account of Jesus after he's resurrected, you find that they recognized him 
except for when he changed his appearance on the road to Emmaus. So that means that we're going to have the ability to change our appearance, by the way. It's kind of interesting. Okay, so his, his disciples, they, they recognized him. He recognized his disciples, and he was able to have a relationship with them. So he knew who they were. Uh, they knew who he was. Um, other awesome things where he passed through walls with little to no effort. Uh, he was in multiple places seemingly at the same time, which is going to be kind of cool. And he could eat food, so that's great. So, <laughs> I mean, so there's some of those things. But the Bible says that the body that we're going to get is going to be is going to be like unto his glorious body. Um, so. Knowing that's the case then, I, I think full well that we're going to be able to know everybody. Like even as us sitting in this room, we're going to know each other. But we're going to know each other perfectly. And not only that, but we're going to be able to love each other perfectly. Which is, you know, how God loves us. So, because uh, we're going to be just like Him. Okay, Carson, you were next. Or do you want to continue? Well, yeah, I was just going to okay. ask like, so God, like on earth, He has the picture of marriage and mm-hmm. like a picture of... Christ in the church. Yes, so like... Is there still going to be, like, are the parents... That's, like, I, I don't know how to, like, form that question. question. Yeah, are you going to be married on the earth to, the, like, are you still going to be like, married in become, heaven, or are you just going to be... Like, are you and Megan going to stay together? We're not going to be married. No, we will not be married. Are you the same one, or are you one person in heaven? I don't think so, no. Because she has her own soul. Yeah. So God views us as one person right now because of the type and the picture of Christ in the church. So... No, continue, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when it says that in God called their name Adam, when he looks at them, he sees them as a singular unit. But it also says that every man shall, shall give an account of himself before God. So each soul is individual before God and is on equal standing. But in the relationship, it is a picture of Christ and his bride or a man and a woman becoming one flesh. That picture is personified in the reality of us in our glorified body because we're made like unto Christ. So there is going to be very little as far as difference. I mean, we're going to have a different identity, but just in the same way that Megan is my wife and has taken on my name, so we are going to take on the name and the glorious body of Jesus Christ and have the same ability. So even though we're going to we're going to look a lot alike. And it's funny because even how it works out practically, you know, Megan and I have been married uh, you know, since 2008. And so there are things that that she views and the way she deals with things have kind of ebbed its way into my personality and who I am. And there are things that I do that have kind of ebbed its way into her personality and it's literally changed our identity where now we become more of one mind and one heart about issues and about things and about just because of, of our lives are completely different. So in that, in that picture, that doctrinal picture is going to be like that in eternity future with Christ and us taking on a body like unto his glorious body, us being the bride of Christ, having his name, being his representatives as kings and priests throughout uh, the world and the universe. So does that help? Yeah. Yes. So would you say, would you say that like, the, <laughs> stop. I'm just curious. I was thinking about this today. But like, would you say that you'd still have like a special relationship in heaven or would it, not that like it wouldn't be any, like, Yes and no, because so I so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna forget about the fact that we were married. Yeah. But when you look at it, yeah. So there there's gonna be the love and I and the care that I have for her is never gonna change. In fact, it's gonna get better. But it's not just gonna be with her. It's gonna be also with all of my other brothers and sisters in Christ. So the 
the the the um, relationship intimacy that exists is going to be equal with everybody else. And so when you really look at it, the closest you can get to that kind of a relationship is only through a, a husband and wife relationship. So That's the closest you can get in now on this earth. No. No, it is not. No, I said I said the intimacy in a relationship. I'm not talking about physical intimacy. <laughs> Sorry, Isaac. You're not going to be able to make out with me, buddy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's on your bucket list with Gavin? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Was your hand up first or was yours? I don't know. Timmy's? All right. Kind of going back to an earlier topic, because I had this question for a while. So you said that you like there's no there is a boundary to the universe. Yes. But if we're if there is going to be population and repopulating, eventually considering that we'll be able to repopulate for infinity, that universe will become full. Mm -hmm. So will we just create like an expansion, just like universe part two? <laughs> sure. DLC. Yeah. Expansion pack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guys gonna install the new expansion pack and then we'll be just fine. Yeah, yeah. Next gen. All right, Brendan. Time works change after the second coming. So after the second coming. All right, so we know that during the tribulation that it is going to change because uh, the, the hours are reduced from a 24-hour day to an 18-hour day because of how the sun is smitten and all, and a third of the sun is smitten, a third of the stars are smitten, which means it's going to change the gravitational pull of the earth on the sun and everything is going to shorten the days, which he actually talks about in Matthew 24. So it's going to shrink from a 24-hour day to an 18-hour day. Now, based on how that's said, uh, God does not permanently destroy the heavens and the earth until the great white throne judgment. So the millennial reign will actually be a continuation of those 18-hour days. So you're going to have a thousand years of 18-hour days, theoretically, and then from there, after he recreates everything, there is going to be no more time. Yeah. Is it 18 or 16? I thought it was 16. It may be 16. I wrote it in my Bible. I should probably look at my Bible. Matthew 24. Let me look. Let me look. Let me look. Come on. You guys are so judgmental. All right. Matthew. <laughs> Matthew 24. So Matthew 24, verse 22. Matthew 24, verse 22, it says, And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And it's actually shortened in Revelation 14. I wrote this in my margin. Revelation chapter 14. Uh, 14, 14 through 16. Nope, that's not it. Chapter 8. I'm looking at chapter 8 real quick. Uh, okay, so chapter 8, verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So take 24 hours, split it into a third, and there you go. Okay, 16. There you go. So 16. 16 hour days. So that's going to be how it's going to work, at least through the, the millennium. And then once the millennium is over, it says in Revelation 21 and 22 that time shall be no more. And so there's going to be no need for the day, 
no need for the night, and God is going to be the light of the entire universe. So it's going to be, once again, a universe full of light again, the way it was in the original. Yes? Uh, when you say that time will not exist anymore, Correct. does that mean that one side of the earth will have the sun always, and the other side will have the moon always just with light? No. The entire universe is going to be light, so there will be no darkness at all. No more sun. So there's no more sun or moon? Correct. Wait, wait, yep. So when the yes. It will be a perfect 72 all the time. <laughs> yeah. What do you got? There's no need to sleep. We're in glorified bodies. Okay. I have a question. All right. This might be the last question because we're running out of time. Why do we have leap years? Because of the Gregorian calendar. Okay, moving on. <laughs> if we were to follow God's calendar, he has a lunar calendar, which is an exact 360-day year, and it follows the lunar cycle. But we don't. We follow the Gregorian calendar, so that's why. Yeah. Okay, all right. So hopefully this was fruitful and beneficial. I had a feeling that we'd probably end up on the gap at some point <laughs> because we always go there. No, it's okay. No, it's fine. What? Is the tribulation seven, like seven years or three and a half? Seven. <laughs> so I believe that the tribulation is seven years because of Daniel's 70-week prophecy out of Daniel chapter 9. The first three and a half are years of peace. The last three and a half years of the, is the great tribulation outlined in Matthew 24. After the abomination. Correct. Once he sits, once the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies and sits on the mercy seat and declares himself God, then God unleashes all the wrath of the vials, the bowls, and the seals that you see in Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 19. Okay. All right, good? Okay, awesome. So that's the millennium. The millennium is going to be a thousand years, 360 days each. Yes, with 16-hour days. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so a lot of hours. Yes. <laughs> All right, somebody pray and close this out. Who wants to pray? I'll pray. <laughs> you taking on the role of Andy? <laughs> Go ahead, Isaac. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> And I just pray for these last couple of days before spring break that we can just be uh, really diligent in school and taking our last opportunities before everyone goes on vacation. And uh, I just thank you for this community tonight that we got to answer a lot of our questions from just things that we've been wondering because uh, it's just really good. And uh, I just pray that everyone can get home safely and that the premium went well. And, uh, Jason, Amen. Why is it going